You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. It's sad that most of us pro-gardeners never get taught to prune correctly. I mean, don't get me wrong, we get taught how to prune, just not how to prune correctly. And the consequences of our cuts are often grotesque, dangerous, and even dead plants. In this episode, we have a friend of the show, consulting arborist Gary Moran, back to teach this important topic. You might know him by his Twitter alter ego, Trees Etc. at ArborSmarty. He's going to teach us why we should or should not prune, where to make our cuts along each branch, and he'll give us some guidance on how to formatively prune young trees. If you'd like to help the Plants Grow Here podcast, please consider following the show on your favourite app and sharing this episode with your friends, family, and colleagues who need to learn how to prune correctly. Dude, welcome back. It's great to be back. I'm just surprised that you have me back and that you think your listeners want to hear me ramble on about trees once again, but it's an honour as always. No, nah, not at all, mate. So first of all, I'd like to start with the fact that you've actually started a new business. Can you tell us a little bit about that business, including what services you offer and whom do you serve? Sure. I'm pretty small at this stage. It's just me as a sole trader. It's called Treeside Arboricultural Consultancy. And at this moment, I'm doing contract data collection. I'm, I'm helping out some other companies provide comprehensive tree inventories to a range of local governments. And it may grow some from there, but that's keeping me off the streets in the meantime. Sounds like a pretty awesome gig. So what are some good reasons to prune? There's a range of reasons why we should prune trees. Some of the most basic ones that we overlook are for access to our roadways and driveways and those types of things. We couldn't drive down a city street unless we prune trees. The branches would be in our way. We couldn't walk down the footpath. So there's one. Another one would be, and I don't want to overly focus on this, but is on risk. If we think some there's some problem with some trees, like branches are long or overextended, or there's a history of branch failure, or branches have poor taper, those are some reasons to shorten some branches to lighten their loading some to reduce their chance of failure. Right. So safety is a good one. Would you prune for amenity? For amenity? Yes, that is a reason. That's not something we, that, you know, in my consultancy that I get involved in too much is to trying to make a tree look better. We're more focused on risk and trying to maintain good tree health and, you know, access to roads and services and pathways, etc. Hopefully, just to touch on your point, when that, when proper tree pruning is conducted, we don't compromise amenity. That's one of our goals for sure. Mm. What are some bad reasons to prune? One of my pet peeves on pruning is for over-neighborly disputes, over-neighborly disputes to eliminate leaf, twig, litter type issues. To be fair, they have minimal impact on the leaf litter that's in your garden or your driveway or whatever. And tree pruning can be expensive, particularly with big trees, and it's not good value for money is to cut a tree back at the fence line to minimize those issues or to try to eliminate them, to be clear. 
right? Maybe the tree's too big is a bad reason to prune. That's right. That's one of the founding principles of our boriculture is to have the right tree in the right place. If you get that right size tree in the right place, then it might only need to be pruned a little bit when it's young to lift a couple of lower branches so you could walk underneath it. Maybe a quick formative prune. We might touch on formative pruning later and might not need to touch it ever again. Hmm. So is pruning bad for plant health? It can be for sure. A couple of points to make there is when you cut something from a tree, no matter how large or small it is, it needs to heal over that wound. And that takes resources from the tree. And to put it in a different perspective, which some of our listeners might understand better, is that imagine if every time you went to the doctor or you took your dog to the vet, they wanted to prune you, to start cutting pieces off you. And for some reason, we expect that in the arboricultural industry and maybe in the horticultural industry also. That's not really my area of expertise, but that takes energy from the tree and it doesn't improve tree health. You know, it's, it, it takes a lot of resources for the, for the tree to compartmentalize those wounds. That means to seal them off and use the, the walls to block pathogens and other things from getting in and to stop the spread of decay. But it's, trees can't always do that, though. They can always do that, particularly in larger cuts. So we try to avoid making larger cuts like whenever possible. But they can't always necessarily keep fungal attacks out. No, no, they can't. 100% correct. Particularly if we do a poor job of pruning. But how much should we prune off our trees? Is there a one-size-fits-all approach here? or There certainly isn't. One of the things that the Australian standard calls for, and while I'm talking about that, there is AS4373, pruning of amenity trees. That's Australia's standard. America has a similar standard, and so does Great Britain, and I'm sure other countries do as well. But one of the things the Australian standard states is to remove the minimum amount of foliage to achieve the aim. For example, if you're trying to clear just a little bit of pedestrian access along a footpath, we might not need to remove six lower branches. We only might need to do a few cuts with our secateurs and just trim a little bit off the ends and that just reducing the weight might raise the branches up some. So I've heard of a one-third rule being a good basic uh, maximum. So I've heard maybe one-third would be the maximum you'd want to take off. What do you think about that? Depends on the age of the tree. On a mature tree, removing 30% of the tree (laughs) in one pruning exercise will be detrimental to the tree's health. And it is also likely to upset the wind dynamics within the tree and to increase tree risk that you are trying to reduce through the pruning. I'll expand on that idea of wind dynamics so all of your listeners can understand is that the tree functions in a holistic manner when it's trying to absorb wind forces coming in from a variety of directions. And so if the tree loses several branches, let's say through pruning, it's likely to lose a lot of its dampening effect. And then those branches will become excessively loaded and they'll be exposed to new winds, further increasing that loading. And so all good intentions to reduce risk through excessive tree pruning, often increase risk. Does that make sense to you? Right. So trees know what they're doing. They do know They do know what they're doing. That's a video I'd like to post up on my Twitter and LinkedIn and all that type of social media sometime in the future is to get 
a soul tree on a very windy day and try it in normal speed and slow motion too and watch how it responds and how the dampening effect is working with those branches counteracting wind forces. Yeah, we'll leave a link in the show notes for people to watch a YouTube video. Yeah, that would be a good one. Yeah. So when we're talking about pruning, are a lot of the same rules going to apply to shrubs as well? Or do trees have their own different unique circumstances? Yes, they do have unique circumstances because, and you'll have to help me out here because, again, horticulture and gardening isn't my area of expertise. But we're trying to put on a flush of new growth and create shapes and other things when we're doing horticulture type pruning or hedges or but with trees we're trying to protect the health of the the health of the plant amenity and not to increase tree related risk where we don't, we're not so concerned about risk with hedges obviously that's right and but there are going to be some similarities so i'd say like the places along the branch that you would prune you know the same rules are going to apply in terms of the growth that that will establish sure as a general rule this all this can't always be achieved is we like to we like to recommend pruning that conducts reduction type pruning, which is a pruning class in the outer third of branch extension. Right. So on the tips. Yeah. Out towards the tips, not necessarily the tips per se, but you know, at least on that outer third and where possible is we always look at removing part of a branch, a tertiary branch or a third order branch. And if that won't achieve our aim, then go to secondary branch And then as a last result is to remove the entire branch or the primary branch. So where along the branch would you cut when you're talking about a removal or reduction? What what does that mean? Tough question. One of the things that we want to avoid, and this is listed in the Australian standard for pre-pruning, tree pruning, is lopping. Lopping is defined as cutting a branch between growth nodes. So we want to reduce the branch back to a branch that's at least one third of size of the part that we've removed. Right. So we're talking about back to the mother branch. So when there's a fork there, those forks are not equal. One of them is the original branch. And then one of them is a fork that's basically come out from a leaf node. And I've got a biology episode with Professor Ros Gledo that I would encourage our listeners to listen to because uh, there's a lot of stuff in terms of how a tree grows that you're going to need to understand. The growth happens out on the tips. So if you put a nail into the trunk of a tree, that nail does not go up. Correct. So what are the basic places along a branch that we can make a cut? And what are the consequences of each type of cut? Sure. A couple of points there is that if we were going to remove the entire branch back to the tree trunk, we want to try very, very carefully to preserve the branch collar. That's a little bit difficult to discuss through a podcast. Maybe we can get a link up or a photo that shows your listeners a good image or images of a branch collar. Yes, there will be diagrams in the links. Sure. You know, that's where the branch meets the trunk. There's an interface there and it's typically defined as a swelling. And we don't want to damage that swelling because that precise area is where the tree has the best opportunity to occlude or seal over that wound. I see. So a term for that I've heard is called the branch collar. The branch collar. Exactly. Right. And what angle would that be at? It can be at many different angles. 
it takes a bit of a trained eye is to identify the collar and that precise place where to remove the branch without damaging the collar. Some trees have very pronounced collars and they're easy to see, while others do not. Hmm. What would be the consequences of growth if we didn't take into account cutting back to the growth, back to you know another branch, but we just cut it in between nodes? Like what sort of growth or what sort of death would happen to a branch? Sure. Cutting in between nodes is defined in Australian standard of tree pruning as lopping. And it's a pruning practice to avoid. So what might happen from there, depending where the branch is located in the tree and what other types, uh, what additional pruning has occurred, the branch may die for one, because we've removed possibly too much foliage from the branch for that branch to succeed. That means the tree knows that it's a waste of its resources to try to regenerate tissue along this along this branch when it can just use its resources in other parts of the tree that are functioning better. Hmm. And the other issue is the branch may grow again. And now we're going to have elongated epicormic shoots that emerge from the branch. And if we allow these without any pruning to continue for years, and I see this often in my travels, the a combination of the elongation, the poor taper of these epicormic shoots, and the fact that we've made a large cut on a branch, decay may set into this point and and again create a risk of these branches failing from where you were trying to reduce risk through malpruning practices. So that's water sprouts, or some people even call them suckers. And that's basically how you make a hedge. Exactly. And that's something we really want to avoid in trees. I've heard you say topping is for ice creams. Topping is for ice creams. <laughs> that's 100% correct. And if I might take a moment there, it's a misunderstanding is the term pollarding. Pollarding is a practice that's conducted in Europe and I'm sure in a range of other countries also, is where they take a young tree and they cut it back to the same point almost on an annual basis. Our Australian listeners might be familiar with vine pruning. That's how vines are managed in some roses and other things. That's completely different to lopping a tree, where lopping is we take a mature tree and we cut it in half, basically. Remove all of its foliage at once. And the size of the cuts where we're cutting through large pieces of heartwood, as I mentioned earlier in the show, the decay and a range of other issues will set in. And that's the beginning of the end for the tree in most cases. Right. So that would be the consequences of trying to prune a tree because it's simply too big. It's simply too big. And as you touched on, many people don't understand the functions of trees, the biology of trees, and what the impacts are from this type of pruning. Or they simply don't know proper pruning techniques and how to achieve or minimize risk through removing small parts of a tree. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I've basically been taught pruning before I studied horticulture through an online series by an organization called Plant Amnesty. So there are three terms for the cuts that I've heard, which are selective heading, where you cut the mother branch back to a fork. Sure. You know, in shrubs, that's fine. That's great. That's that's easy to do. We can easily do that. So that helped us shape the plant. You know, maybe the fork goes off in a direction that we prefer, or we can prune the shrub back to that divergence. 
So when we're pruning the mother branch back to that fork, back to the new branch that's coming out from an old axillary bud that grew a long time ago, mm-hmm. we call that a selective heading. Then a removal is where we remove the branch right back to the trunk or the small offshoot branch back to the mother branch. And then a non-selective heading cut is basically a shearing cut or a, a lopping cut that you've just mentioned there where you prune it back to into in between nodes, just basically back to no particular area. Sure. And that's how you make hedges. And generally, I think in horticulture, it seems to me like the industry is moving away from just random hedging. If we're going to do topiary, we're probably going to want to think a little bit more about it than just simply, oh, just put a golden diosma there and then when it gets too big, we'll just turn it into some lumpy shape. I really like what Cass Turnbull says from Plant Amnesty. She goes, why do we turn these beautiful plants into fridges and into shipping containers and into hockey pucks? (laughs) That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, so what do you think about that? I've seen some impressive topiary conducted on trees. It's not something I've been ever involved in personally. And, but, you know, then again, if we're talking about risk, when you're able to manage something that's like a hedge into a shape and you do it on a, nearly an annual basis, that risk is avoided. But that's not what we see in trees. We see once again, too often is a mature tree cut in half or large branches cut in half where risks are being increased. When you know, that person was actually trying to manage risk in some way. Mm. So you can shoot yourself in the foot by trying to get a bit too clever. Yeah, that's that's right. It's Tree pruning often is less, less is more. And would also like to advise your listeners that really high quality tree pruning, it's often hard to notice. You don't see a massive impact to the tree shape or size or, you know, if you came home from work and a good arborist pruned your tree, you might not know until you look for a series of smaller cuts around. Point. And they're going to be clean cuts and they're going to be back to the branch collar. Back to the branch collar if they're conductive selective pruning, removing a branch, or, or back to a branch intersection, like I said before, using that one-third rule. And if I can just expand on that, that's a little bit of a hard concept, again, is to try to explain through a podcast. But... A true violation of the one-third rule, let's say if we took a branch to say the size of your thigh and we reduced it substantially in length and we and the only live piece of foliage we cut it back to say was the size of your small finger. And so you can see that's well outside of the, the one-third rule. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And that branch would be very unlikely to succeed, particularly if it was in the lower part of the crown. Mm, I see. So... One thing I've heard is that when you've cut correctly to the branch collar, what you'll see when you look dead on at the cut is a circle. That That, that is well said. I've never heard that described in that particular way, but I'm going to steal that off of you like I own it now. <laughs> yeah, as I see that often with flush cuts or cuts are at the wrong angle where they start to look increasingly oval shaped, don't they? when you get that wrong. I think so. If you get it right, depending on the shape of the branch, I'll give some latitude there, but they should be circular in shape. And also I try to prune 90 degrees to the branch that I'm cutting. So that should leave a circle shape and that it will leave a little bit jutting out from the, from the mother branch. And that should be your branch collar. 
That's approximately yeah. right. Your, your 90 degree rule would work pretty well in most circumstances. Mm. It's better to go too far out, but we don't necessarily want to leave a stub, do we? No, it's critical again that we get that cut just about right. That gives the tree, again, the, the best opportunity to compartmentalize and occlude those wounds. Should we err on the side of cutting into the branch collar or leaving a little bit of what they call a stub? You know, because I'm just thinking like for some of our listeners and for even me, like sometimes it's really hard to find the branch collar and you just don't know, should I go a bit further out or should I go a bit closer and which way do you risk it? I would always risk going a bit further out and trying to avoid damaging the branch collar. That, that's the critical part. And you can always come back and cut that stub off if you can see the dead wood. That's right. You could at a later time or leave it alone maybe at that stage. Okay. But at least at that stage, if we can avoid damage in the branch collar, we're less likely to allow decay to pass through the branch collar uh, yeah, and into the trunk area and cause long-term detrimental effects to the tree. And I'd urge our listeners to check the show notes for diagrams because this is an audio podcast and Mm. you really need to see diagrams to get the hang of what we're talking about. So what is the three-cut method? Let's describe the three-cut method firstly and the wrong way to do it, and then we'll come back to your (laughs) three-cut method. Great idea. In terrible, awful tree pruning, someone will take a chainsaw, start it, and put it at the top of the branch and just start cutting. And so then what happens is the branch doesn't fall cleanly or separate cleanly from the tree. It leaves a long tearing wound that damages the branch collar, as we were just discussing, and sometimes can even go downwards and tear off like some of the bark and tissue on the trunk, as you can imagine, which is detrimental to tree health and lets longer-term decay set in, et cetera. And so the three-cut method is doing a pre-cut. So that's a a small undercut, maybe a quarter of the diameter of the branch, say 50 or 100 millimeters out from the branch collar. Then with your saw making a top cut at that same line coming down towards the small undercut that you made, and then the branch in almost every circumstance will break cleanly off well away from the branch collar. So then you've got that, say, small 50 or 100 millimeter stub there, and you can make your final cut carefully at the branch collar and cut that stub away nice and clean so there's no tearing of the trunk, collar, bark, etc. Well described. Do you think that people should go for cutting up or down on that final cut? Sometimes, depending on the union, you're unable to cut down. It's always easiest to cut down with a chainsaw. But when there's other branches around or with a handsaw, we do use handsaws often as well. I'll come back to that. It's a difficult one to answer. There's lots of reasons to go to do it both ways from the side. However it needs to be done, I suppose, is the right answer is to not damage the branch collar, the trunk or any other tissues on the tree. Right. Because we've got way less of a load now that we're just making this final cut of 100 mil. That's quite close. Depends on the size and the weight of, of the of the branch. Like obviously, sometimes we might need to leave them longer, shorter. It's, it's hard to define an exact length. It does take a little bit of experience just to get that, get the knack for that, and to get it right. Yeah, absolutely. So, which branches should we cut? Let's go through the ABCs and the DDDs of pruning. Sure, our DDDs are dead 
dying and diseased branches. And so that's one of the first things we always look to prune from a tree. And that's part of a pruning class, again, which I keep harping on about is in the Australian standard is part of maintenance pruning. So that's uh, normally where good pruning starts. So your dead, damaged, diseased are your DDDs. What are our ABCs? What are our ABCs? Oh, assess bad branches and competing or ah, branches. I'm learning lots from you about tree pruning tonight. <laughs> no, mate. <laughs> You're not, mate. <laughs> sure. Removing crossing, crossing branches from a tree, particularly when trees are young, is a great practice. That avoids that competition for light, causing other branches to die back later through pruning and or rubbing of branches on each other, causing a weakness and for them to fail or, or to damage the trunk. Yeah. So I guess we start by assessing. We just walk up to a tree and we, we do not pull out our chainsaw. We just assess. We just look at the tree. I guess our bad branches are those DDDs that we just discussed. Can you describe what our crossing branches are, which is the C within the ABCs? Sure. A crossing branch is typically a branch that's touching another branch. One that's for some reason or another, it's turned itself around and is projecting it back through other areas of the crown and not heading straight out towards the light source without getting in the way, of, if you will, of other branches or rubbing on them. And when, when we talk about pruning of trees, a lot of your listeners will make the assumption that we're always talking about pruning large trees for risk. But a pruning class that not enough people are aware of and not enough time and resources are invested from local government and other tree managers is called formative pruning. So that's where we take a, a young tree, say, just out of the pot and it's ready to go on the ground and we remove any dead, design, dead dying, diseased branches and any, any crossing competing branches at that time with secateurs when the plant is small. And the cuts are small. There's no heartwood to cause decay. And we can remove a lot of material at once in a small, vigorous plant. Yeah, and that can save thousands of dollars in expensive tree pruning, removal, reduced risk, just with our secateurs when the tree's still in the pot right before we put it in the ground. And again, that's called formative pruning. Yeah, and we will leave another link in the show notes for a video on how to formatively prune a tree because that can save you a lot of heartache in the long run. It, I've, I've always said, Dan, that if you get your formative pruning right to a young tree, that tree may never, it may never require pruning again. Wow. And then you just let them go, especially under power lines. And then, like, you see, oh, you're just on the back foot. <laughs> Yeah, I've, uh, I've done a lot of consultation around power lines and there's a lot of misunderstandings about things in power lines and the power line cutters are blamed for a lot. And that's not really the case. I, it's a difficult task those guys have and generally they do a pretty good job to the electricity standards. And I suppose that's a, another topic for another episode. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, you you drive around Melbourne and you look at the shape of the trees under them and you can tell they have been formatively pruned. Like they're not, yeah, you've got some water sprouts popping up here and there, but they're yeah. going to be pollarded back. 
That's right. And that's done in their cyclical power line clearance printing every couple of years. So that's not too bad. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's incredible. And once you get an eye for the growth that's happening and where they're making the cuts, I just love looking at them. It's, it really is like artwork watching these people mm -hmm. on the fly, or at least imagining them on the fly, how they came up with these solutions. Yeah, it is. It is pretty cool. And there's a, a lot of understanding about how trees are pruned in high bushfire areas in particular and why that pruning is so harsh. But we just can't have foliage and branches and things like in contact with high voltage lines in particular. The fire risk is just too high. Mm. Yep. Well, we could have just planted a smaller tree under there. Well, that's where we started this episode, wasn't it? It was about the right tree in the right place. And our local power authority has a whole range of species that are listed as inappropriate for being planted underneath power lines. And that may be whether they are too big or it may be the, I'm guessing, their habit, like their post-pruning habit. True. I've, I'm working on a project at the moment for a local council, and one of the Parts of this assessment is to provide them locations for tree planting opportunities. And that's one of the criteria within this assessment is I have to identify if, if there are power lines overhead. And so that allows council to know that they can't put a tall tree in there, that they need to select something smaller, maybe, you know, a bottle brush or a crate myrtle or, you know, something similar, a smaller tree mm -hmm. to minimize pruning and to achieve better amenity outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can belt around a lot of the clistamines, the bottle brushes, and they'll, you know, just come back. Like you can cut them quite harshly, some of them. Yeah, that's right. And since it's a smaller tree, it not so much needs to be, be removed from the top of the tree. And so the amenity outcome is much better when you plant a small tree underneath, a, underneath the power lines as opposed to, say, a, a large eucalypt. Hmm. Going back to what we were talking about with growth, patterns as well. When you see someone who's cut down something like uh, some of the proteaceae members, they'll cut them down quite harsh and then watch them sprout back or a clistamine or something like that. Watch how the growth happens because it does happen in those little water sprouts or out of the under the bark buds called epicormic buds, as Gary mentioned. Just It's just really interesting to look at over time how cuts shape a plant because as soon as you create some of those shearing cuts or the lopping cuts, You've completely lost the natural shape of the plant, and it's really hard to bring it back to that beautiful natural shape again. That's true. I've heard that described as it, it destroys the habit of the tree. Yeah, that's well said. I don't think it can be done. I don't think you can hedge prune a plant and then expect to get a natural shape back out of it. Even if you just let it go wild, it'll never be the same again. No, never, never. I've seen people, that's another pruning class too, is crown restoration pruning. And so that's a type of pruning that is conducted after a tree is, say, damaged through a storm or malpruning or, or other means. And as you eloquently stated, you never get a natural appearance of the tree back again, despite your best efforts. No. And for me as a horticulturist, that's what I love. I love the natural habit of plants. I don't like seeing people pruning them. Like, and, and here's another one. I mean, this isn't even, you're not even cutting stems here, but some of the strappy plants, like mm -hmm. your liriopes and stuff like that, people will bull them off or just cut them off the pathway. And I just think like either remove it or put something in that you like there, because if you get the liriopes right, it can be nice to have them cascading over the path. 
certainly can. Uh, what's what's that saying? If it's only a bad haircut for two weeks, but <laughs> bad tree pruning can be a lifetime. Yeah. It most often is. Yeah, and even liriops as well, because you're going to have those half leaves there. You're going to have to it's going to have to spend a long time cutting them right back to the base where they should have been cut at in the first place. Anyway, we won't get into that, but because <laughs> we're talking about mainly stem pruning here. Yeah. So overplanting and poor plant location can create the need for malpruning. It certainly can. Just thinking about some of the inspections on several trees I did in a council reserve earlier today, and these trees were planted too close together and not at the same time. To further clarify, a a new tree was planted under a semi-mature or a mature tree, and so then that new tree's got to grow out towards a light source. So it's going to grow in a malformed way on some sort of an angle. And we've lost some of the amenity of that tree for one due to its strange shape. And over time, if that has to continue out on such a strange angle and be malformed, risk could increase also. That's not always the case, but but it could. Yeah. So, and that type of growth is called phototropism, where that's the tree's natural response to grow out towards light. So it's important that when we plant new trees, that we get them in the right place and we're avoiding those mal-shaped phototropic responses to get good amenity outcomes and to have low risk and to avoid unnecessary tree pruning. Great points. One thing I'd like to add for people who are landscaping and you know, you plant the plants when they're small because they're cheap and you know that they're going to get bigger, but they look silly when they're too small. So what do you do? One thing you can do is overplant and then thin out every second plant or mm-hmm. even go harder. Like just, you can remove plants. Don't be afraid to remove plants. It's fine. Just to use your bottle brush example again, I, I see this far too often where I'll see, let's say a mature Morton Bay fig in a private garden. And then a local council has planted a bottle brush out, out near the footpath directly under the Morton Bay fig. And this bottle brush is growing out sideways straight into traffic. And it's got no pruning options other than to remove it because, again, it's the wrong tree in the wrong place. Or maybe there is no right tree in that, in that place. <laughs> maybe a Little John, a Clisterman Little John. Yeah. Do you know those? I do, yeah, or <laughs> maybe just a smaller shrub or or something. But I see juvenile trees have to be removed far far too often for poor planting locations like that, as I just described. Yeah, better to remove it than to try and battle it for the rest of its life. I mean, there's a huge cost involved in coming and hedging it because that's that's your game plan. If you're going to keep reducing a plant size, you're going to have to end up turning it into a hedge. And that's uh, too resource intensive for local government in particular to deal with. You know, they have limited resources and they're trying to manage tens of thousands of trees. And it's really important that they get the, that they take good consideration on species of tree and location prior to planting. Yeah. Couldn't we honestly, literally, we could not stress that anymore. Otherwise, we'll be beating a dead horse. (laughs) So, true. (laughs) So, what tools do you recommend people use for pruning, including large limbs and small ones? I was once told by an old mentor of mine, Dan, that you're not an arborist unless you own and use a handsaw. Hmm. 
Yeah, we hear we we think trees, and most people think chainsaw straight away. But if we go back earlier to our discussion, when we're reducing, doing some pruning to young trees or reducing branches in length and concentrating that pruning on the outer third of branch extension, often a handsaw works in many instances, even on mature trees. So I've gone a little bit off track there, but I always have a a small pruning chainsaw, a, a battery powered one. It's great. Silent pruning is good. Handsaw and a pair of secateurs. There you go. So that's the trifecta. And what brands do you use and recommend? I have an ARS handsaw and secateurs. And my chainsaw, again, is a top-handled battery still model. But other companies make really good products also. Hmm. I've actually heard you talking about ARS before. You like them, don't you? I do. It's just... Something I started using a few years ago, and I can't say that I shop around and try lots of other products, but I've had my handsaw, which I sharpened myself and my secateurs for many years now, close to 10, I think, and they're still growing strong. Wow. You actually sharpen your handsaw. Is that, how long does that take you? 45 minutes, maybe. It doesn't need to be sharpened <laughs> all that often because a handsaw isn't typically something like a chainsaw where it, you might get it in the dirt occasionally and, you know, it's used off the ground and looked after a bit better than most chainsaws are. Two things I want to ask you. Firstly is, do you actually sharpen each tooth individually? Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that would take ages. And secondly, what do you, like, do you put it in a sheath? How do you keep it? Does it fold up? How do you keep it like sharp and not bumping around in the trailer? Yeah, I have a special sheath and when I want to do some pruning, which isn't very often out in the field, I just clip it onto my belt with a carabiner. And my sheath also has a little pouch for the secateurs to be in there. So that's my go-to for pruning is I just grab my little handsaw secateur combo and and off I go. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of people in horticulture and in, especially in maintenance, you know, they have their non-foldable handsaw bumping around oh. in the trailer, hitting metal all the time. And then they sort of say, oh, handsaws suck. Just get out the chainsaw. And it's actually quite funny. If you maintain a good sharp handsaw, you can cut through a, a branch the size of your wrist and just four or five pull strokes. It's actually faster than the chainsaw. By the time you get the chainsaw, get fuel in it, start it, et cetera, you get the point. You could have just pulled your handsaw, made five quick strokes and cut it off. And the quality of the cut would be, all, would be much better too. Handsaws make a much cleaner cut and they're much better for plant health. Mm, good point. And depending on how much you use it, you might invest in a really snazzy one like Gary has, or you might just prefer to buy an El Cheapo one from a big green shed somewhere and then just replace it once it's done. Sure. Yeah. That's the, the key. Once again, though, is, is you try to remove minimums and, hey, can I achieve the pruning that I need to here with a pair of secateurs or a handsaw before I get the chainsaw out? And with a little bit of practice, you can most times. But that's not living a zero waste lifestyle, though, if you replace it, though, is it? <laughs> you don't want to be throwing tools at too much. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I could find a way to recycle most handsaws. It would require probably trying to separate the metal and the plastic parts and could be done. But anyway, let's, let's not go down that rabbit hole and get me started <laughs> about zero waste and recycling and things. That was an episode a while back. 
And having said that, you, you, you can replace the blades. Yeah, right. On, on many models of handsaw, so. Good point. So what are some of the hazards when it comes to pruning? We've touched on a few of the hazards. And when you say hazards, assuming you mean detrimental impacts to the health of the tree or creating risk further along. And, and again, making large indiscriminate cuts on a tree is likely to increase risk, increase branch failure, cause extensive decay to set into the tree and may result in the early removal, removal of the tree. I've seen this in many instances. Mm. Yeah, and malpruning can cause yeah weak structures that can fall on people and buildings in the future. I mean, God forbid. I mean, like it's not likely to happen, but malpruning is one reason why it would happen. I see it quite often. Even when pruning is not horrific, it's moderately excessive. A client will have me in for a consultation and they don't quite understand why the tree was just pruned, but they've had a branch failure. And we talk about some of those things as how the pruning was a little bit excessive, and now these area, this area here of the tree is exposed to new winds that it hasn't seen before, and then here's your branch failure. So this isn't going to be fixed by cutting lots more off your tree. That's only going to make the matter worse. I think the risk here is pretty low, I'll tell the customer. We may get another small branch failure too, but I expect it to adapt to this over, over time because, again, the pruning was moderately excessive, not horrific. Sometimes if it was horrific, we might recommend the removal of the tree. Yeah, and that's a tragedy. Yeah. Particularly where there's fixed targets under the under the tree, like, you know, heavily used parking areas and homes and those types of things where we don't feel that we can effectively mitigate risk. Mm. And not to mention even risks when you're actually doing the pruning itself. I mean, pruning tools can be quite dangerous and I mean you have to say some of this stuff. Don't don't stand under a tree that you don't stand under a branch that you're pruning. Like <laughs> sounds obvious, but <laughs> but then that's almost an oxymoron when it comes to using a power pruner. You put this chainsaw on the end of a long pole and you reach up to cut things high, and so you're <laughs> automatically standing under the branch you're trying to cut and creating your own hazard. Those aren't cheap. T- those aren't cheap tools either. I'm sure in today's money they cost around two thousand dollars. And I've seen many pole saws bent into funny shapes by people not getting out of the way or getting the pole saw uh, out of the way fast enough after removing a large part of a branch or a large branch. Yeah, I mean, I do use a pole saw at work, and one of the th- one of the things I had to laugh at myself about was that I was holding it upside down one time and I sprayed myself with sawdust. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> What about kickback zones? Yeah, that's a like when we're cutting firewood on the ground, you know, typically we're in a nice balanced position. The saw is at a nice length and wrists, if you're familiar with a chainsaw, are generally pretty low. But then when we start pruning trees and we're reaching up around our, our face and over our head, which we're not supposed to do in some circumstances to, to get those out of reach branches then that's where we can get some kickbacks and have some bad injuries. I've known a few people who have had had some bad chainsaw cuts like from pruning, as I just described. Yeah, it's horrific. I mean, basically the top corner of the saw, I guess the top quadrant you'd call it as you're looking at it, it's kind of like a wheel, you know, It's it, as it spins, it's going to push that chainsaw back at you. And 
one thing that they taught me when I did my chainsaw ticket was to never have my face directly behind that kickback zone because it is a common injury when people are pruning at their face height or just below for that kick for that chainsaw to kick back and hit them in the face and yeah, it's game over. That's also why on a modern chainsaw that the handle isn't perpendicular to the chainsaw blade. Mm. So that's designed is to kick back away from you slightly, but sometimes we stand in the wrong place. But if, but next time you're standing directly over your chainsaw, look at the slight offset of the handle. Good point. And while we're on the subject of the handle, roll your wrist forward and turn that chain brake on when you're not cutting. Each and every time. Every single time. To go off on one of my strange little tangents there, Dan, if I may, I would love to hear some feedback from your listeners. If they've heard of any injuries that have happened with a battery-powered chainsaw that wouldn't have happened with a petrol chainsaw because there's no noise and you're assuming a chain break is on and you just mm. you just grab the thing and all of a sudden the battery brings it to life. I think there might be some new hazard there that maybe we haven't quite grappled with as an industry using you know battery tools. Do you, have you have any experience in that yourself or have you heard of anything? I mainly have experience with petrol chainsaws, but the electric hedges that I've tried have a mechanism where they don't turn on without your left hand on the handle. So that seems like a good place to start to me. Yeah. But yeah, not foolproof for sure. Because yeah, if you're walking around and uh, the machine's idling when you have a petrol one, with that that chain break on, you could easily trip or someone might walk into you or you just never know, man. Like it, you're not playing around with a toy here. This is serious stuff. Yeah, that's that inclination that I have when using my battery chainsaw is that it, since it's quiet, maybe there's a diff, different type or limited respect f- hmm. for how dangerous it is. And I just wonder how that's playing out across the industry. It's the same cutting part. It's just not idling when your fingers aren't on it. And like you said, I mean, with a petrol chainsaw, when it's off, it's off. But with an electric chainsaw, it's not really ever off, is it? As soon as you put your finger on that trigger, it's going to go if the battery's in there. Yeah, I, I agree. That's something I've thought about from time to time when using it, is to try to remember to use the chain brake and not let myself get fooled by this quiet thing and be complacent. Yeah, it's really important to make those habits just, I mean, every time I cut, it's just habit. There's no way I'm ever, it doesn't feel right to leave the chain break off. Like that would, it would be niggling at me. It just feels wrong. And I don't even think about it. Uh, I don't either. Honest. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's why we need habits because we can't always think about every single thing. We rely on our habits. Yeah. In all aspects of life, really. Yeah, that's true. When would you recommend calling in an expert to perform your pruning for you? Difficult question to answer. Firstly, I would say more often than people do, because I still witness lots of poor pruning out there that's bad for tree health and risk and all those things that I've been talking about throughout this, throughout this episode. And we also touched on formative pruning earlier in the episode. It would just be great is when people plant a few new trees over the winter, if they had someone like myself or yourself come in and conduct a little bit of formative pruning straight away is to, like I said, avoid 
costly and extensive printing works for thousands of dollars 30 or 40 years later. It sounds strange to people, but that would be the the most value for money is having, having someone prune your trees when they're young and not wait until they're a hazard. Mm. Right. That's a really good point. I mean, you might think, oh, I don't need to spend the money to get a professional out to do it. But as you said, I mean, are you saving money or are you setting yourself up for a bit of a nightmare financially? That's right. A couple of small branches go in your green bin and, you know, a short one hour consultation and it's it's all over. And like I said, might save you thousands upon thousands of dollars in a couple of decades from now. Yeah. And as a professional horticulturist and maintenance gardener, some plants and especially trees are just far too big for me. I mean, yeah, I'm constantly telling clients, hey, you know, you need to get an arborist in to do that. And it's not something that they like to hear because we're probably a little bit cheaper than an arborist, but it's just not something that I'm insured to do is prune large trees. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but a lot of horticultural industries are only insured to a maximum height of five meters. Is that true? That sounds about right, but I think I'm only three. Only three. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. The other point that I would make there regarding the hazards of tree pruning, and this includes tree removal, right, also, is many years ago when I was a contract tree climber, I went to a handful, maybe several jobs a year where the homeowner had injured himself while pruning, typically a ladder fall. Yep. Yeah, cuts off branch, doesn't use that proper branch cutting technique like we talked about with the undercut and the top top cut. So the, so the branch falls nice and flat. The branch starts to fold and tear, takes the ladder out from underneath the client or knocks them off the ladder. And there we go, injury. And when you're cutting a branch of that size, you're probably not using a handsaw. You're probably using a chainsaw without the chain break on. All sorts of, of general comedy of errors like going wrong there for sure. Yeah, but I just know from personal experience, as I know lots of clients that were injured and they called me in post-injury, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I can believe that, Gary. Just while we're on the subject of ladders, yeah, just avoid using a ladder. But if you're going to use a ladder, it has to be where all four legs are on the same level. So it's completely like level. There are some pretty cool ladders where one side will go up higher than the other side so you can sort of work on a hill while still being level so but i do not recommend going and getting a brick and putting it under i do not recommend getting three bricks and putting it under one side (laughs) you know we're not mucking around here just hire a professional to come in if you feel unsafe yeah that's right i wish i had five dollars for Everyone who told me back in my contract tree climbing days, oh, do you want a ladder to get up there? And I always responded, ladders are dangerous. Ropes and harnesses are much safer. Yeah, and they're cooler as well. That's right. (laughs) We've done an episode on arboreal climbing athletics with Alexandra Julius from Davy Tree at episode 62 of this podcast. And it's pretty cool what you guys do, like climbing trees. Like that's a pretty bad, badass job. Yeah, it's. Uh, I used to like the bravado in it back in the day, and I still I still do a <laughs> recreational tree climb every now and then. And just the other day, me and an old colleague were talking about having a, a recreational slash photography climb one day. So watch out for the tweets. That'll be fun. 
So how are plants pruned in nature? I wouldn't necessarily say that plants are pruned in nature. I, In my assessments and travels, I see a lot of trees that are damaged in by various aspects of nature. Some are through a range of pests such as lerps and other things. Possums do a lot of tree damage. And then the weather, I wouldn't, again, I probably wouldn't call that tree pruning per se. I would, that weather tends to knock trees around a bit and make and cause branch failures and stem failures and other things. And to go back to pruning classes, that's where we use that restorative pruning again, too, is to fix things after they've been damaged by some of those events. Right. So when we're talking about pruning, we're talking about clean cuts made by a professional. We're not talking about just branches coming off. That's right. Is to it, We might need to try to select a, a new side branch that's going to become the ape apical dominant branch in the future, etc. Select the the strongest, best best attached epicormic growth to become, you know, the new center of the tree, if you will. So I guess the difference would be in nature, these damaged parts are creating habitat, whereas in pruning, we're not really creating habitat. We're trying to do the least damage to the tree. Yeah, that that's right, where we get a range of Australian birds and we see them chewing away at the tree, trying to make future habitat for themselves. Totally. So, Gary, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Probably just to talk about some of the fundamentals of what we've already discussed here is about getting the right tree in the right place to avoid expensive and unnecessary future tree pruning. and to get some advice from a, a consulting arborist, someone like myself, on, on what the real risks of your trees are and what type of pruning needs to be done and to get some pruning specs in, you know, in writing that you can use to take to your tree contractor, who hopefully also is a qualified arborist, is to conduct that pruning to a high standard. I reckon the next one we have to do has got to be formative pruning. What do you reckon? Yeah, that that would be a good one. Do you reckon we could get a whole episode out of that? We could do a 20-minute one. Yeah, do a shorter one. What do you reckon? I reckon because I want to hear, I I'm I do, <laughs> I formatively prune, but I don't really know how. Yeah. <laughs> so that'll be a good test for me. So, I mean, I just do it for what I think, like just ABCs, DDDs. Uh, I, I, I reckon that's that's all you need. We, we don't need to go crazy. Yeah. Because like you said, you get any of those crossing branches out for, for starters, yeah, any, any competing branches. And you know what bar conclusions are, don't you, Dan? Can you explain it for the listeners? Because I'm going to put this in. Sure. A bar conclusion is when a branch union tends to look like a very tight V shape as opposed to an open U shape. And the name implies bark has gotten down and trapped inside this union, which creates a structural weakness. And so sometimes in our formative pruning in a young tree, we can notice a bark inclusion somewhere within the canopy, right? And with our secateurs, we can try to remove a bark inclusion. And just further, often we'll see a young tree that has two trunks that are growing from that type V-shaped angle again. And this type of tree is only supposed to be a single trunk tree. And when a tree is that small, like pot size, literally, we can remove up to 70% of a tree at that time 
and it will still be just fine. And so that's where we cut out one of those stems that wasn't meant to be there. Right. I can think of one client that I work for in particular where every time I work there, I'm writing a note for the boss to tell the client that they need to get an arborist in because they've got this very tight V shape on this giant eucalypt overhanging their house. Yeah. And I don't like to see it. I don't know what the answer is there because it's already so thick, Gary. It's so thick, sure. mate. I don't know what to do. But with, with some things, though, like not all bark conclusions are unstable. And if we went and removed every single tree that had a bark conclusion in it, like half the trees and like in the street would be gone. And so it does take a little bit of an eye to realize when something's unstable and when you go, oh, that's a bark conclusion. That's not too bad. Let's Let's just keep an eye on it. I'm going to send you a photo. Okay. Because I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, oh, and also the other thing is the it's on like a rocky kind of, I guess, in inverted commas, retaining wall. And oh, <laughs> so yeah. there's not much room for the roots and it's overhanging and I don't like it, mate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just back to pruning again for a second. When we do see things like bark inclusions, that's one of the things that we can do is to cut the bark inclusion out if that opportunity presents itself, which it always doesn't. But we can also do a little bit of reduction pruning on those branches that are attached to the stem that's being supported by that included bark union. And that can reduce the the leverage and loading on that union and to obviously reduce risk. And again, just with a few small cuts out out on the periphery of the branches. Interesting. And so that reduction of load will mean that there's a reduced risk of branch or trunk failure. Correct. As I, as you would know, if you hold something of relatively small weight, say half a brick out in your arm, that's quite heavy. There's a lot of load on your arm when it's at that extension. And branches are the same. If you remove a small piece out from the end of the branch, that's quite a significance in the reduction in loading back on the branch union where it's attached to the trunk. Mm. Great point. So Gary, our listeners are going to need to look at the diagrams and watch the videos in the show notes, and they're going to need to listen to this episode more than once because this is a lot to take on. And if you've never heard about any of this pruning theory before, you're not going to get it on one go, are you? No, I hope they listen to this episode and all of your episodes time and time again. Worthwhile show for sure. Thanks, mate. Yeah, I appreciate that. I know for me, it was a long process of watching the vi- going back and watching Plant Amnesty's videos again and again and going out in the field and pruning and then watching the effects that my pruning had over time. So I could see where I'd gone wrong because, yeah, just the, the way the plant healed or the way that the plant grew just tell me over time, over the years. And it, and it does take years a lot of the time or at least one year. But yeah, practice on shrubs, not on established trees. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things that the layperson doesn't understand is, you know, like I look at something as an obsessive person about trees. I watch something bad that was done to a tree. And most people don't look at that tree again. And I might drive by it, you know, a couple of times a month or something. And I watch how it it responds and, and learn from other people's mistakes, which is pretty cool. And I was going to, I was going to say something to you about about your formative pruning i was gonna say nah you know how to do it you you've just described it to me perfectly yeah that would be that would be the only other thing that I, like as i touched on is if you need to don't like when things are still pot size you know a meter tall go hard 
you know, don't don't be afraid to remove some branches or a whole stem or, or or whatever it takes. The trick is you have to know, like obviously if it's a Mallee species, you don't go cut four stems off because that's what it's supposed to look like. But if you get a Norfolk Island <laughs> pine that's got two trunks, you know, you snip one off with secateras when it's young. That's the, the most absurd example. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. And we're not we're thinking about following those rules about selectively pruning. We're not trying to shear cut it when it's. We're trying to formatively prune it and turn it into a hedge at that poor young stage. Uh, yeah, unless right. you want like a ficus standard or something. Thanks for another awesome episode, mate. No, that that was really cool, man. Remember, your ABCs are A for assess, B for find bad branches, such as your dead, damaged, and diseased branches. And your C's are for finding crossing or competing branches. We spoke about crossing branches, but forgot to mention competing branches, which are those branches within the structure that are going straight up, just like the main stem. You'll usually want to remove those before they get too big so that your branches are all facing outward. If you'd like to help out this podcast, we don't take donations, but please follow the show on your favourite app and share this episode with friends, family and colleagues who need to learn how to prune.